And the way forests used to be inventorized, looked at, keep being kept track of, uh, is used to be a five to ten years cycle of visiting the forest and taking samples. And if you then basically are working with five-year cycles that are based on human inspection, you have a fairly significant margin of error. We sort of sat around a table in Munich years ago and we we're sort of debating things and, and why don't we combine climate data and climate intelligence with business processes? Started to understand this forestry market, realized there's a lot of data there, which is fantastic for machine learning. And there not a lot of not a lot of is being done with that data. Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sarani, and I'm your host, Vidya Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands that are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today, we talk with Rolf Schmitz, co-CEO of Collective Crunch, AI leader in forestry. He joins us from Bavaria, Germany. Welcome, Rolf. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Vidya. With all this talk in the news about climate change, its impacts, steps to reduce global warming, you know, reduce the temperature by one and a half percent, forests form a major part of that solution. What percent of our planet is covered with forests? Very substantial part. About 30% are covered by forests. It's a substantial part of the globe and of the climate ecosystem. So indeed, it's a big. So what would you define a forest? Like, is it the density or is it the expanse or the... There's actually quite a bit of science around that. This agroforest where you have sort of a mix of agricultural plants and, and forests themselves. But generally, it's sort of, you know, from a certain density of trees, it pretty much, you know, you when you see it from a density of trees that scientifically becomes a forest. But actually quite a bit of work we do is also about sort of where forest has been lost. So you're basically talking about areas that aren't forested and you want to reforest them and, and elements like that. Talk about how we've lost, like what has been the pattern? Some of the forests are lost naturally because of the fires, which have to happen every so many years because of the brush. How have our forests changed? Very significantly so. You see in the Western world actually not a lot of really natural, you know, many generations of growth kind of forests. A lot of what you see is it's considered natural. It might even be domestic species, but quite a fair share of it has been at some stage cut by early generations and, and replanted. So, for example, in the US, there's only parts of the, the federal land that is, is still sort of really old forest, which actually goes back hundreds of years, got a lot of undergrowth, which is actually in some quarters seen as one of the highest risk fire areas in the country. What we see sort of basically sort of a sliding scale, there's sort of, you know, the Amazon, which, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll manage to protect over the next generations, which is really sort of, you know, natural and, and, and rainforest. And then there's different parts of the world. But let's say in Finland, which is sort of our core business and where we originate from, in many areas, the forest is a bit seen like a field. It's taken out at some stages, replanted. There's a rethinking there of not doing clear cuts because they have some impact. You know, you have a stand, a smaller area, and if you take out everything, it has a certain impact on the ecosystem. So basically, the processes are in some areas changing towards just taking out a few trees. It's kind of a big question in a way. Uh, there's, there's lots happening, but overall, there's sort of a lot of awareness that we need to be mindful about how we're treating forests. 
there's also a fairly strong case for sustainable forestry that has commercial applications because resources coming out of forests are replacing plastics in packaging and things like that. So we're kind of basically addressing all of these different fairly complex aspects. So you talked about reforesting and in a country like Finland with ample resources, very small population, pressure on the land and its resources is limited. But how do we influence countries which are still growing, need to build homes, need to build furniture with a burgeoning middle class? How do you get them on board to first not cut anymore or at least cut sustainably and to reforest? Cut sustainably is a watchword here, and there's lots of efforts going in that direction. For example, one market that I've been having some exposure to is Vietnam. And one of the things that in some of these countries, basically the governments are trying to do is to move from a very low value added forestry, which basically is, you know, you grow the trees a couple of years, you cut them, you shred them, and they become really like a very low value added kind of input into a process, pulp mostly. Rather than doing that, that you move to a forestry that is growing the trees more longer, longer cycles, you move to higher value added kind of more manufacturing, deeper value-added kind of processes. This pulp is a fairly generic process. And the way you sort of extend the life cycles and you aim your forestry at sort of longer life cycles of product, you tend to generate a bit more employment. And there's, there's quite a few things there that are sort of deeply into economics that, that are being attempted on the side of sustainable forestry. You plant it, at some stage you cut it. You basically try to minimize the impact on the environment while maximizing the economic impact, the impact of sustainable employment, basically giving, a, at least from a forestry perspective, contributing to sustainable growth of an economy. So those are some of the things in this field that are being done. We all know about carbon credits. When I purchase a carbon credit for a flight from New York to Chicago, I basically pay a farmer in probably the Amazon to not cut that tree, and we are giving him an alternate source of livelihood. Is that accurate? In its intentions, it's accurate. There's a bit of a problem about the quality of climate credits. You know, there's the whole sort of, you know, topic of greenwashing, and there's been a fairly consistent over many years now problem with credits being coming from projects basically not credible, that are not doing what they're saying they're doing. When you look at what corporations do in the US, Europe, and so forth, they are trying to not just buy public on a carbon market, but really invest in a project with a trusted partner to make sure that the credits that they get are actually of high quality, that they have the integrity of, um, of basically holding water if checked by a journalist. And, you know, we've all been on YouTube and seen some of these sort of more infamous projects. And that's sort of an issue there. But in principle, you are trying to offset carbon footprint that you leave behind and that you hope basically by acquiring a carbon credit that you, you offset that activity. Also, besides greenwashing, sometimes these credits are sold twice. How do I know that I, as a person selling the carbon credits or being the trader of carbon credits, I am not selling it to you and to the person next to you? There is a, quite a bit of standards going on. There is there are um, sometimes called VCS, it's a standard organization that basically builds a registry and works in a certification process, uh, checking projects when they're being set up. 
and there's gold standard, there's some, there's some American uh, specific standards. So there is sort of quite a bit of framework around that. And actually, a lot of that work is, that's being done there is, in my opinion, very, very good and well-intentioned and scientifically sound work. There is the, the odd you know, debate around you know, that standard has failed, and kind of it gets you sort of good press in the sense of a lot of attention. And there are people who are basically saying that these standards are no good because they create so many problems. In my opinion, they're good standards. They're going into the right direction. The issue is much more we talk about a very complex thing. You know, we're talking about forests in the southern hemisphere. We're talking about remote areas. It's just hard to track these things. And it's only in the last couple of years, which is sort of the contribution that we make, that technology can help to better track forests. And that increases the transparency to such trades. So we had in the past a guest from the company Climate Trade, and they are a registry for carbon credits. And they authenticate when the credit is done, they put it away or archive it or whatever their process is. And they are one of the folks who are trying to verify the credit, register the credit, and authenticate credits with their digital registry. What is your solution? Our solution is the analytics of verifying if a credit is actually, you know, does what it says, if you like. If we look at the chain of events, then there's a project being proposed that gets approval from an accreditation body like Vera, and a project manager sort of does that project. And the way forests used to be inventorized, looked at, keep being kept track of, uh, is used to be a five to 10 years cycle of visiting the forest and taking samples. And you don't know a lot what's going on if you're sort of on that kind of level. You know, if you take a five-year sample and let's say the airline you just mentioned, they want to sell that credit in that moment that you're purchasing or a corporate Microsoft and Google are very active in this space. They want to put into the annual report what their impact has been. And if you then basically are working with five-year cycles that are based on human inspection, you have a fairly significant margin of error. And another aspect of this is a lot of growth there. So there are significant problems in doing that manual work. There aren't enough foresters. There's just not enough enough skills around to facilitate that manual process of tracking, monitoring, verifying carbon budgets. So we have in that sort of value chain, we have a narrower position of saying, okay, we can validate what's there. Are you a forester? I personally not. We have a couple of foresters working for us. And we come actually with three co-founders. We come from mobile internet services, those kind of things, you know, huge amounts of data, and you analyze them to seek growth, to seek improvement in the customer relationship and so forth. We sort of sat around a table in Munich years ago, and we we're sort of debating things, and, and somebody said, we don't even remember who it was, why don't we combine climate data and climate intelligence with business processes? So that was sort of a, a trigger that was there in that time. We did a couple of things before we hit forestry. We we actually have a minor sort of small project that's ticking away, sort of, you know, machine learning project that's active to date that predicts energy from wind farms. Mm-hmm. A completely different field, but in this sort of climate and predicting energy from wind farms is important because you need to balance the network and, you know, let's not go too deeply into it. 
But so we did that and we looked at that market and we looked at logistics. Could we help logistics? We did a little bit there. But when we, due to sort of Finnish origins of Yarko, one of the co-founders, started to understand this forestry market, we realized there's a lot of data there, which is fantastic for machine learning. And there not a lot of not a lot of is being done with that data. And so basically we came from this sort of data software, internet services, and applied it to forestry. But we fairly quickly came to we need a few foresters in the company to do this properly. And we have a few foresters in the company. So you collect this data about the forests all around the globe. Well, the globe is probably you know, sort of a little bit beyond any one entity, but we do this in Colombia. We've done it in Latin America broadly, so Brazil, Chile, which is sort of a, an emerging market for us in terms of how we develop it. But we started this off in the Nordics, so we've done Finland, Sweden, and the Baltics fairly extensively. How do you collect this data? We, we use, by virtue of the background that we have, we basically said, get all the data in we can get our hands on. And so we have layers and layers of satellite imagery, sort of optical images. These are near optical images, radar. There's some LIDAR, which is a laser technology that's kind of a bit like radar, <laughs> simplifying a lot. And lots and lots of other things. If you want to do this on a level where people sort of base their investment decisions on what you do, you need ground truth to calibrate the satellite imagery because the sensors are just too far away. Then in the calibration, there's the old style of doing things. Somebody goes in and does a few measurements, sampling, and documents that, and we use that for ground truthing, for example, in, in Latin America. Sometimes there's LIDAR information. And in the Nordics, there's also a lot of wealth of information from harvesting itself because they measure very accurately. And then you basically calibrate a remote sensing system, you calibrate with that ground truth. And then you get to a you know statistically verified, scientifically sound confidence interval and so forth, which you tend to need for investment decisions and, and for the kind of decisions our customers are taking. So who verifies the data that you collect? I believe you, but how do you get credibility? So forestry, it's always been done on statistics because it's very large areas and you need to somehow make sense of it. And so our customers are very well-versed and skilled in statistics. One of the things you do is basically the customer doesn't give us all the data. We do the modeling, we come back with the answer, and the customer takes a share of the data that they haven't shared with us to see, okay, do the models tell us what we have here? So that, does it correspond? So there's sort of a fair amount of you know, science around coming to a very clear understanding of what the accuracy is. So they compare the data to make sure that it matches? Some data you use for training of models and some data you use for testing. So when our model comes back and they see what we say, you know, the forest should be like, then they can compare that with data that describes the forest that hasn't gone into our model. It's sort of a classic machine learning. Isn't that classic? But it's a well-practiced way of tracking accuracy in machine learning. When you collect the data, what would be in that output, the results? Like, would it say... This acre of land in this forest in Brazil has what? It has trees of this and those species at this and that dimension. And the dimension of a tree corresponds fairly directly with the carbon that has been sequestered. Scientific formulas around that where you basically, a couple of ways of doing it, what we tend to do is we have the dimension above ground and then there is a key, like a formula that gives you the root for that species underground. 
And so with that dimension, you come with the dimension that we basically predict with our models, you then calculate factor in the root. And that is the, the amount of forest, of, of bio, of wood mass that is there. And that is basically then a formula that trades, translates into carbon. And as you track that over time, you can basically say, okay, last year we had that much carbon. This year we have that much carbon. So it's about dimensions at root, at, at core. And the dimensions give you how much carbon this particular species, this tree, this plant, this shrub can absorb and also gives you uh, insight into the soil conditions because soil also can absorb carbon. You're absolutely correct. It is um, an important part of all of this. But what we do is sort of, you know, fairly challenging just doing the forest, just doing the trees. And we have so far not done the soil. And part of that is the soil is harder to manage to track remote sensing wise, but also harder to track and less well documented in terms of checking the soil. There's in many, many areas of commercial forests, of forests in, in carbon projects, there is a track record of the sampling of the trees. But very often there isn't anything tracked on the soil. The tracking the, the dimensions of the trees and such is, is a lot easier. But you can apply what we do to agriculture and some other things. We haven't done that yet, but we're modeling nature. So it's really complex. We have like 60, 70 person years of development in our system. So it is really, really complex. So we are very cautious to add significant challenges to what we do, like you know, carbon in soil, which is sort of an entirely new kind of route to go, you know, path to go down, and where the science is also maybe not as far developed as in, in trees and forestry. You have to be careful which fights to pick in a way, because modeling nature is really, really complex. You can get sort of you can overload the balance sheet you have with the ambitions of modeling that can possibly do. Yeah, it's better to focus on a smaller problem, try to solve it and then grow slowly. How do you update your data? You know, there is a forest fire. I keep coming back to forest fires because there were so many this past summer um, over a flood which washes away the forest. How often is your data in these pockets that you have data updated to keep it accurate, right? Yeah, there's definitely a certain cycle. Of course, it's not a cycle like you would have, you know, an internet service where you constantly track things on a second's basis. Trees don't go super fast. So quite often you track the growth quarterly or half yearly or even annually. That's sort of, you know, the general growth that you do. And then you do a change detection on top of that, which is, has there been a fire? Has there been a storm? Do we not find the dimensions that our models are saying and that we're tracking? Do we not find them anymore? And then that becomes sort of the delta of a some destructive force of nature or unplanned harvesting. There's algorithms to track that. And in that case, on the risks, on the damages, you might want to track a bit more frequently. There's, for example, pests and your biological damages that can happen. You might want to do things a bit more speed, a bit more frequently there. Quite often, if it's a storm damage, there's like a public announcement. So you do it when the public announcement comes. Also, there's quite often there's a public announcement on a fire. But you can't at the moment in terms of where we are and processing power and so forth, you can't really sort of, you know, track the world's forest on a, you know, on an annual or daily basis. It's just too much data and the processing power would be would be overwhelmed. Even a quarterly basis, it is probably millions, if not billions of lines of data. I'm just thinking of, say, you have a retail store just to keep track of your garments. 
is itself challenging on a quarterly basis. I am really appreciative that you're able to do these on such a large scale. And of course, you have the help of technology. I think it's a very good analogy. I mean, just having a shop and keeping track what's in it or, you know, a production facility is hard enough. And here we're talking nature. We're talking, you know, trying to do this without people having to go there. Yeah, it's a pretty significant technical challenge. So who is your typical customer? We started off in the Nordics and our first customers were state forestry companies. They are the biggest players in those markets. They've got millions of hectares, bordering on 10 millions of acres, huge areas. And sometimes these areas are hard to access at specific seasons and so forth. So we modeled those. And as we were doing that, we started to get into, okay, there's this carbon thing. And we tried actually for a couple of years to basically educate people at what's possible. And a lot of what the carbon kind of world and value chain does is a relatively old standard that's manual. And so we started to educate people on what's possible. And our customers are at the moment people who develop these projects. So people who have feet on the ground, plant trees, or do the kind of things associated with a carbon project. Quite often there are site benefits like a school might be built and operated or so forth and who bring these kind of projects about. And we make basically their life easier and, and so forth. A very good partner for ours for Lions is in that business. They have teams on the ground and skills to do these projects. They're in Mexico and Colombia and more countries than I could list here. We help those. We also help investors who have sort of lots of projects and want to keep track of these projects. Another significant part also for project managers is, and let's say you've kind of decided you want to go into Costa Rica or into an area in Colombia. Then the question might be, so where's the forest? Or even more complicated, where, you, where, where where's an area where you had forests, but there isn't forest anymore? And so you need to basically then get into a motorcycle or a Jeep and drive around. That's how this is done today. And so we're introducing tracking and monitoring algorithms that basically say, you know, if we get driving around in a Jeep, we can, with specific parameters that you're seeking, we can identify, pre-identify land. Most likely somebody still gets into a Jeep and drives there when the investment decision is made, but you can save a lot of time in pre-selecting and in pre-analyzing. It's like going to Google Earth and getting your first image of something that uh, you're trying to buy, maybe a plot of land or something. So, But you offer a more detailed analogy. But you use a couple of tools I saw on your website. You mentioned LIDAR and also a Linda Classic. Linda is the solution that we have. <laughs> Linda is the name for the solution that we have. And LIDAR uh, data is it's just very good source data for us. Quite often, particularly commercial customers, they, they fly LIDAR, which is kind of a scan of the ground. And so you come back, you fly a plane or a drone over an area, and it shoots down signals and it tracks the reflections, you come back with what's a point cloud. So every reflection becomes that and it sits in a, basically becomes a huge GIS geoinformation system file that is a pretty good snapshot at that time. Unfortunately, it's too expensive to do these LIDAR scans, you know, every quarter or so. So we take LIDAR scans for calibration 
And then our system predicts the areas without future LiDAR measurements or with fewer future LiDAR measurements. So LiDAR is a very powerful sensor that is applied in forestry quite a bit. And so we're kind of pretty expert in processing LiDAR data and feeding it into a multi-layer solution that kind of looks at different aspects than just LiDAR. How is your data standardized? Because you have so many different components and how, if I look at your data and I'm an investor or a government body, how can I compare my forests in North America or Nordic to the ones in Colombia or Brazil? I mean, you definitely, you're looking at different models for different biophysical regions. So we, the models, they are related to each other, but they're applied to a specific region. That's a process that needs to happen. In terms of the input data, it is, it's actually a very significant skill we've built. So we build half the technical team is data engineering. So they are basically taking any input data there is and putting it on a map, basically, on a geo-information system. And then data scientists work on machine learning models and effectively the output becomes and what the customer sees is pretty similar to what they've always seen. Basically, an area of forest described by parameters, size of trees, species, and so forth. So the complexity of the data we handle is kind of shielded from the customer who either in our user interface or via APIs or, you know, into their existing legacy systems, they get the description of the forest that they always had, just more accurate and with less resources and at lower cost. So how did you get funding for your projects? That's a very good question. We're a German-Finnish company by origin, and we became ever more Finnish. Part of that is that the Nordics have a very clever and mature way of applying public funding to drive innovation. And it helped us a lot in the very, very first steps. How so? Lots and lots of countries have these sort of, you know, development agencies. They have budgets and they apply those budgets to projects, supporting companies from big to small to say, you know, go and invent if you think that's good. There's some screening process and so forth. And lots and lots of countries do that. And in my observation, the Finnish Nordic countries do it best. They're just very switched on. There's a process. One leads to the other. Um, We are in our fifth or sixth, actually it might be seventh, sixth or seventh funding cycle with an organization called Business Finland. They understand what we do. And it's really, really, really sophisticated. And some other countries, they do sort of, you know, if it's about startups, you do sort of a shootout. Everybody presents and then somebody wins and gets a prize. That's not how they do it. They basically, from the very first beginning, you, you think you can do that? That sounds plausible. Here is funding package number one tiny, by the way. And if you sort of pull that off successfully, there is sort of a sequence of things that you do. And and it really sort of, you go along with that. And at the same time, you get some funding from capitalist investors and you constantly double up the money that you're getting elsewhere. So it's pretty sophisticated and very impressive from an outsider as I'm not Finnish. Thankfully, we've got, you know, commercial investors, you know, equity investors. And we started off with sort of mirroring this, what I just described, sort of a business Finland public funding. It's a very active angel scene in Finland. And so we, for three, four years, we went sort of, you know, going to angels. They kept coming back to us like what we did. There is, you know, a deep 
connection to forests in the Nordics. So these angel investors, sometimes they've made their money or some family money comes from forests. Somebody owns forests, is interested in it. These things kind of contributed to get us off the ground. And then after, at some stage, the angel game, I don't mean that disrespectful, but the angel cycles kind of have worked their way. The amounts are, are getting bigger. And so we had a family fund called Tom Invest backing us up early. First commercial investor, and then we have um, a sort of a very famous Finnish uh, investor called Alexander Ehrenrod. He invested via Nidoko, which is a commercial fund that he brought in. And every time we sort of do these funding rounds, we go back to Business Finland and say, we've got that backing. We've got proof from the funding market. You know, we want to do X. And then you get, you kind of double up what you've just raised in equity with that. So it's a, it's a pretty sophisticated, pretty impressive kind of process that they've built and that we're part of. So if I was your customer, you would give me the data and I would use it to make my decisions, right? How big is your company and how much data are you accumulating? It's kind of mind-boggling just to think about the different parts that you have, say, on one piece of forest, let alone multi-continent in multi-country regions. If we take the output in terms of how much land we model actively in the system, we are at, we counted just recently, 23 million hectares. It's sort of unimaginable. It's sort of 50 million acres that the system has today. And it's part of, you know, when I described earlier, there's a data science and a data engineering team. You really need to have your data engineering straight. And I'm not saying it is straight today, but it's a real challenge to build these kind of systems that can take in that much data. And on the granularity, on the multi-layers that we have, from the best of my understanding, is probably the most highly scaled there is at the moment. There's some very, very credible you know, players in this field, but they tend to take its kind of different position, if you like. You know, doing this sort of on, on a tenth of millions of hectares, acres, is pretty substantial in the you know, data engineering that you need and the processing power that you need and so forth. So it is a, it's a niche, but we're quite an, an elephant in our, in our niche in terms of the scale that we have. So with all the data analysis and the servers and the processing capacity, you also probably have really huge servers which put out heat. Is there some level of contradiction there? We do have a few sort of servers of our own, but we largely went towards, you know, cloud services. So it's it's externalized. And the thing that is really heavy is much more the data piping than the actual processing because the, you're not kind of modeling the globe. You're basically feeding data of a specific area, let's take Colombia or Costa Rica or a country, a region in a country like that. You feed that in and then you process that. It's not light on process. It's a heavy process, absolutely. In all of these things that we do, human race, there's a contradiction in, in lots of these things. I mean, think, you know, the, the COP meetings. Thousands of people get on a plane to fly to a place to talk to each other. Think of the manual process of tracking a project and verifying carbon. Literally, a forester gets on a plane and flies there. There's always a little bit of a question of where do you come from. In overall budget of tracking forest, we're a lot more efficient than you know, forest flying out there and, and basically doing this manually. But in lots of these things, there is elements of that that you need to be mindful of. And I remember one... I did a university speech in, in Finland a while ago and somebody said, but isn't 
aren't these satellites basically cluttering and destroying space? <laughs> Good point. At some stage, you know, do you want to push science forward to understand these things better and sort of, you know, basically take the advantages, take the disadvantages in your stride while you're kind of pushing forward. That's sort of the view that we've taken and that largely the scientific community has taken on this sort of thing. It's all about making a balanced choice and being cognizant about what choices you're making. There's n there are no absolutes in life or anything that we do. I completely agree. What are your next steps? We definitely want to expand in the Southern Hemisphere, get deeper into the carbon business. And that's something where we are speaking to quite a few large players down there, speaking to partners. And that's sort of the thing that's kind of set in train and that we're on a path to achieving and, and sort of, of course, debating. And it's a non-trivial business effort. The thing that in more towards your question, I think, is sort of what's kind of what's the next big thing? And that, to my mind, biodiversity. We came to this whole carbon debate by, you know, the planet heating up and we, knew we need to do something about it. And we're sort of in the process of doing that. It's a multi-decade effort as far as I'm concerned. And while that's taking place, we have some climate change. And nature is, the more diverse nature is, the better it the more resilient it is to that climate change. And now with these effects happening, we see a lot of interest and discussions around how are we going to track or track biodiversity. So it's sort of the next thing. And at core, we're problem solvers. So, you know, that's what we're really sort of, you know, fascinated about. And the next thing we believe that needs to be happening is factoring biodiversity into carbon projects. Because quite often, if you really optimize a carbon project, it might not be super biodiverse because you want these trees to grow as fast as you can so you can offset carbon. And that entire community is much more now going towards what's the overall impact on this? What is the biodiversity net result of doing this? And, and so that's sort of a really interesting thing. And from our perspective as a company, what's really cool about that is hard to track, but we have algorithms to start tracking it. And so that's sort of something that we believe for us is going to be a really, really big thing and a big sort of the next frontier, if you like. Thank you, Rolf, for your insights and wishing you all the best in your and Collective Crunch's ventures. Thank you again for coming on Mindful Businesses. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a voice note with your questions or comments to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. Subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcast. If you learned a thing or two from this episode, share it with one friend. We recorded this podcast in Buffalo, New York. Theme music is composed by Tatum Gale. Our marketing assistant is Roseanne Korean. Our advisors are Jim Stone and Anupama Pasricha. This is Vedya Ayer with Mindful Businesses.